0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Ridzeski, here with Greg Bear, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids.
1: This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change.
0: On today's episode, we're talking with George the Poet, a spoken word artist, activist, author, podcaster, and much more. George has been called one of the most exciting social commentators and forward thinking creatives of our generation, and his BBC podcast, called Have You Heard George's Podcast, has won award after award, including a Peabody, making it the first podcast outside the United States to do so. George the Poet, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow.
2: Uh, thank you very much
1: for the introduction, guys. How are you? We're doing great, and we feel so lucky to have you here with us today. George, we want to start with a comment that you made while recording the score to your podcast with the BBC Concert Orchestra at the famous Abbey Road Studios in London. And someone asked you what it meant to be in such a space, creating something that means so much to so many other people. And you responded by saying this, Our young people should be made aware of how far their thoughts can travel. So George, when did you first begin to realize how far your thoughts could travel and who helped you discover that?
2: I think I was quite fortunate to discover this along my creative journey. I started rapping when I was about 15 years old and using that medium, I was able to transform my life really. Outside of formal education, I was able to connect with people from different areas, which was very difficult when I was young. I was able to funnel a lot of what I was experiencing in my educational career directly into more creative outlets. And this took me onto stages, this took me into different environments. So I really wish that feeling and I wish that realization on um, our young people, on everyone. George, you've talked about
0: growing up with immigrant parents in a council estate in London, what, we, what here in the United States, we'd call a housing project and eventually going from there into Cambridge, which of course is one of the most prestigious universities on the planet. And you've said that along the way, you found that the top-down approach to education, the idea that smart, cultured, well-off people are going to share with you how to be like them, does not work. And I'm wondering, can you say more about that? What did you realize that you needed from education and learning that the system you entered was not set up to provide?
2: Well, what I was able to present in my um, learning environment, when I got to Cambridge, I felt like my secret weapon was who I really was. Whereas prior to that, in my grammar school, I was very much encouraged to be a certain type of gentleman, to be a certain type of thinker. And um, I realised that my experiences in the environment that I grew up in, and my ability to connect some of the ideas that we were discovering on our educational journey, to connect that with lived experience. You know, a lot of people from my area didn't go to university, let alone go to a university like Cambridge. This really just alerted me to the opportunity of being able to not only represent, but to draw on on some of those lessons, which eventually informed my creativity and, and the career that I have now. George, your comment a moment ago
1: about discovering your secret weapon, your superpower, that it was you, It actually makes me think of Fred Rogers, who's this icon of American television and whose story about which Ryan and I write in our book. And Fred said this once, you are a very special person. There's only one like you in the whole world. There's never been anyone exactly like you before. And there will never be again, only you. And people can like you exactly as you are. I can just imagine there you are at Cambridge and and once that aha moment where you're like, you know what? It's me. I'm my superpower. What was that moment for you?
2: It was baked into my process because, you know, you got to do the application. You got to do your interviews. And uh, my mom actually advised me to wear my truth on my sleeve. I'm sure we all know about code switching, changing up the way you talk, changing up your references when you come from a background that is maybe minority or even working class, and you're moving into a, an institution like Cambridge. And I was expecting to live a life of code-switching in Cambridge. I wouldn't say that I was able to just completely shrug it off, but in the application process, my, my mom mum advised me to just speak how I actually speak and be who I really am. You know, fortunately, they didn't reject me. You know, so that felt like a little bit of a validation that it was possible to not change who I was. And by the time I got into the space, I remember um running to be chairman of my uh, student union where I presented my manifesto in poetry, which is the first time I'd done anything rhyming for formal purposes or for, you know, career slash professional purposes. So I wrote a verse that was all about what I hoped to achieve as chair for the student union. And I won by a considerable amount. And that was the first month that I was there. So that really made me feel like the thing that's going to help me get through and not lose myself and um, make the best contribution that I can to this collective learning experience is to dig deeper into who I really am. We're
1: clearly going to get into your work as a podcaster, as an artist, as an activist. It seems to us too that in your work right now, you're working to create these learning moments, these learning experiences that spark that aha for others. You work with people who are incarcerated. You've been sending students on school trips that maybe they missed during the pandemic. What kinds of learning experiences are you aiming to provide for others, for learners?
2: I call it informal learning. I really want people to not feel like you have to be in a particular building or think a certain way or talk a certain way in order to have an enriching educational experience or even an educational practice, an educational lifestyle. I want to open my listeners' minds to the possibility that you're probably learning right now or you're being taught all the time, but what you learn is something that you can have a more active role in. So really, I just wanna, yeah, just break down some of those mental barriers, them social barriers that make us feel like learning is for school or is for education. And if I don't have a top-down organization telling me what my learning priority should be, then what I'm learning might not be as valuable. That's a myth.
0: So Greg just mentioned your work with folks who've been incarcerated, and you said something really interesting about prisons. You said, What matters is being part of a social scene that provides the emotional stability and hope that enables someone to lean into their better nature. And I I absolutely love that quote. And I feel like it's probably true beyond prisons too, right? It's it's certainly true of the workplace. It's certainly Mm. true at home, it's true in schools and all the other places where people learn. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you see your role as an artist and an activist in sort of creating in supporting those social scenes, that that sort of atmosphere that allows people to become the best of whoever they are.
2: I do think my role is always evolving and it's subject to my own education. I've tried different things over the years and um, results have varied. And as my politics have evolved, um, so has my feelings towards what methods are really important and what what works. So to go back to that quote that you just presented about, the security of the right social environment i've tried to inspire that or i've tried to encourage that through the images that i paint through my work or even the topics that i speak to given that i'm able to like i said informalize the process all right how do you bring in a demographic or a social scene that is not used to speaking about x in this way or doesn't get much credit for handling you know whatever subject or whatever material or whatever concepts in the way that they do so i came from the rap world i ended up in the spoken word kind of world what i find is that in rap spoken word all these forms of creativity black creativity which i came from people are really pushing the envelope in terms of educational approaches pedagogical practices within their work we can take for granted what is happening in those creative spaces, in those friendship groups, in those youth clubs, in those recording studios. We take for granted in those open mics, we take for granted what opportunities there are in providing people this thinking space that is different, you know, it's not so rigid. So I really wanted to enrich people's imagination on what that thinking space could be. That's why I approach my podcast and my poetry in the way that I do. But I really also feel a responsibility to advocate for justice, advocate against the injustices that prevent a lot of people being able to find that social security. At the end of the day, if you are hungry, if you are endangered, if you are wrongfully, unlawfully, unjustly incarcerated, it becomes almost impossible to think about the headspace you need to be in to create the right learning environment where your ability to turn your situation around is even more important we need to be giving you even more support in you know taking control of your educational journey so there are different approaches for different scales of challenge
1: this is greg bear i'm here along with ryan radzeski and we're talking with george the poet a spoken word artist activist author and podcaster george your podcast is called have you heard george's podcast (laughs) <laughs> and maybe its most defining feature is that folks who review it all say this well, we don't know how to define it. It mixes music and memoir, sometimes fiction, sometimes interview clips, and the voices of other people, and much of it in rhymes. You dive into issues of race, music, love, history, migration, and diaspora to say just a few. So, George, how does George define George's podcast?
2: Well, I usually lead with a descriptor. I say it's an audio series. And um, I think that's more helpful because podcast is very much a formatted thing in people's minds. It's like what we're doing now. And my podcast, sometimes it encompasses recorded conversation. In fact, most of the time it's a more scripted experience, which uses my poetry to walk through subjects as big as the direction of African politics or the commercialization of black culture but this is what I'm saying about just trying to make a learning experience that is informal it's fun and it's immersive and you don't feel like you're having to suit up to go to school you're just literally chilling hearing some interesting thoughts
0: George in lots of ways your podcast or your audio series it's a documentary of your learning and your development too. As listeners we get to sort of come along for the ride. You mentioned earlier your own evolution, the evolution of your politics, how your thinking has changed. And I'm just curious, you know, so you have this massively successful podcast. It's won all these awards. What has the process of producing this podcast done for you? How has it changed you? How has George the poet of today different from George the Poet before the podcast launched.
2: I was actually recently writing about this, and I think one of the main things is that it has made my public pronouncements more deliberate. At the start of this journey, having this revelation that I'm wasting my ideas on Twitter, you know, not in an arrogant (laughs) way, in a way that I haven't even developed a thought. I'm being incentivized to react to whatever is being spoken about and I'm not really keeping track. No one really keeps track of their tweets. And I am not developing what I am saying far enough to really be confident that I am growing. I started thinking to myself that it would be better to release a concentrated thought process in a format that people can listen to that is unchallenging. And that that ended up becoming my podcast. So what, what I find is that each installment when I listen back to the three seasons that are out now they all contain like real leaps in my thinking sometimes it's a step sideways as as opposed to a step forwards it serves a dual function of me being able to keep track of what I'm actually saying as well as being able to distill my most intentional my most deliberate my most well thought out stuff for artistic enjoyment
0: well, thank you for that, George. I think we need more uh, deliberate and well thought out uh, communication out there in the world. <laughs> thank
1: you. And Ryan and I are clearly reading those tweets and listening to the things that you say and, and reading the things that you write. I want to quote you again in something you said about creativity, because it, it's one of the things that Ryan and I write about in our book and, and you're celebrated around the world for your creativity. So we want to know a little bit more about your creative process. And you once said this as you launched your podcast. For a year, I didn't release anything, I just listened. I was watching the news, watching documentaries, traveling, speaking to people, listening to my infant nephews. The listening is what keeps the output flowing. So how do you make sense of all this listening that you're doing in the world? How does that get distilled down in the mind and the team of George the Poet to come out as something so original?
2: I think credit goes to to the village, to the community to the environment and you know fortunately we live in a time where community doesn't have to be limited to where we live but by listening in you know human beings we're social so you start to form your own thought processes and your own rebuttals sometimes to the stuff that you're hearing but if you are really really deliberate about it you're also able to filter out what isn't for you what conversations do you not think you should be a part of what conversations are you not really qualified to be a part of that has been part of my development as well and what happens is that i keep returning to my core which as a writer you're going to do anyway you're going to have your base thematically where you feel most comfortable but at the end of the day what is going on that is driving the breakdown of community that i feel like i've been witnessing across my life and eventually those they move on to like economic questions as well as educational questions you get an intersection with all of these other aspects of our political reality, they really make you want to have a say and take more seriously the job of representing others who don't get a say.
0: George, we, um, we understand you're working toward a PhD at University College London, and sure. uh, I'm, I'm curious, what are you listening to and absorbing as part of that process, and, and what do you hope to do with what you're listening to and absorbing on the other side of your doctorate?
2: I am listening to a lot of commentary online, a lot of really compelling personalities that put out video essays, (laughs) like right now I've been down a rabbit hole of video essays, people like Fab Socialism and a guy called Lil Bill online, but really interesting commentators who are either fresh out of education or they are continuing their education just literally by being a YouTube personality. Tee Noir is another one. People that are able to mix commentary on contemporary social conversations and and social issues with current affairs, political theory, educational theory, uh, real interesting stuff. I'm also doing a lot of reading. I'm just about to get into this book by my PhD supervisor, Mariana Matsukato. She's got a book called The Big Con, which is just about the direction or the influence of consultancies in government. I'm trying to pay attention to the landscape, to the playing field, to the parameters around formal education in order to create a more interesting space for informal education.
0: I love that idea of learning spaces and listening spaces. George, how can people find out more about the work you're doing?
2: You can um keep up with me online at George the Poet on Everything and also keep an eye out for a couple of things. I have been part of a poetry anthology that will be released in summer with Penguin Random House. And I have my own really serious book of just pure thoughts, zero poetry, theory, uh, reflections, etc. Just things that I've learned that's gonna be coming in autumn. And there will be another chapter of my podcast towards the end of the year.
1: George, my friend, before we go, we have just one more question for you. And feel free to use rhyme if you'd like to. You don't have to. (laughs) Uh (laughs) What's one thing that families and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner?
2: Treat a young learner in your life as if their life is worth studying. It changes everything. Treat that young learner like education is not something that happens outside of them. Treat them like it is the expectation of their journey because the minute you are here, you are worth understanding, your history was worth understanding, your role, your potential, it's worth seriously studying, they should feel like they are surrounded by people who are invested in that inquiry.
0: George, thank you so much, thanks again to George the Poet, a spoken word artist and the host of Have You Heard George's podcast with another chapter coming soon. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.